ABC Radio. You're listening to Nightlife. Nightlife with Philip Clark. Joining us uh, on Nightlife News Breakdown is Fran Kelly, uh, these days presenter of the ABC's The Party Room podcast with uh, Patricia Carvelis, but of course uh, herself a pretty experienced political commentator too. Fran, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Pleasure to be here again, Philip. Well, hot seat today was certainly Philip Lowe's in uh, in the Senate as he appeared before parliamentary economics committees trying to justify himself. That's unfair. He was justifying himself, <laughs> I suppose, uh, in a mid-ongoing criticism of the RBA's decision to lift the official cash rate nine times in recent months. Unfortunately for him, although he must have known this, his appearance did coincide too with the announcement of record Commonwealth Bank profits. The bank, one of the big four, recorded record profits for the half-year financial year by delivering statutory net profit after tax profits of $5.2 billion. Not not the the greatest day, perhaps, to to announce or to try and justify a rise in interest rates, Fran. No, doing the Reserve Bank government absolutely no favours and not making it easy for the government either. I mean, the bank was clear because they were grilled about it. This profit, this um, 9% jump in profits, more than $5 billion, as you say, for the half-year profits, has come because of the interest rate rises, because they're reaping the rewards of more people paying more money on their um, on more interest rates on their mortgages that the banks hold. Um, so profiteering from people's pain, and it's all very clear, the connection for people to see, because people are feeling it so acutely at the moment. And to make matters worse, the bank not only posted that profit, it also paid a higher dividend to the shareholders. So um, the, the people who are the investors, the shareholders, are uh, doing very nicely thank you out of the misery that is being felt by the millions of uh, mortgage holders, homeowners at the moment who are really struggling after these nine interest rate rises. So that was the bank was one story. But meanwhile, it was the Reserve Bank governor who had to sort of face the music at the estimates, Senate estimates grilling in Parliament House today. Not great timing. No. No, the governor uh, continues to insist that he and the other board members backed by a big staff, of course, are right. In fact, he was keen to point to his deputy <laughs> at one point who was with him in the uh, in the appearance to say, well, look, it wasn't just me. There are nine others, uh, he says, most, including the person to my right here, uh, that higher rates were the best way to tackle surging inflation. This is Philip Lowe explaining this to senators today. Except for in extraordinary times, it's not the best tool to use to manage aggregate demand. Interest rates for all the faults and all the problems we have is the more nimble tool. Yes, it's it's the tool, maybe not as nimble as we wanted. He's, he's, he's right about that, isn't he? Well, yes, and generally the economy is fairly sensitive to a rise or a decrease in interest rates, but it's being stubbornly, inflation is being stubbornly resistant this time and the the, the governor went on to explain that um, they want, they're trying to, to they're still waiting to see whether the answer or the reason for that in part is because Australians have record savings at the moment. And so even though they're belting us over the head with the interest rate rises, uh, many people have a savings buffer. And so that money is still going in. It hasn't really – I think the equation, according to the bank economists and according to CBA today, is roughly that – um, people are only really feeling the pain of 50% 
of the rate rises so far because that's the degree of buffer being afforded by these by these interest rate rises and the bank's still waiting to see what everyone's going to do with this buffer. Are we all going to start spending it? And if so, that's not going to help with inflation either. No. So the pain is just going to be prolonged. So look, it's difficult. No one's arguing the Reserve Bank has um, a, an easy task. It doesn't. Inflation in this country is at record highs, but it's a lot lower than it has been in some other countries. Um, um, and the bank you know, is is doing the one thing it can do. It's pulling on the lever it has at its at its hands to to do something about it. It's just being stubbornly slow in responding. It's a lag indicator. Here, around, I'm in Canberra at the moment. I've been around Parliament House today, and many of the government politicians, in particular, will tell you that they're pretty sure that you know the interest rates are having the impact, and that the lag. You know it, it, what the what the Reserve Bank is not factoring in is the lag time, and they think there's been enough interest rates. Thank you very much, and we probably don't need many more, if any more. Um, but that's not how the governor sees it. And he was saying today they think they will need more rate rises. He wasn't saying how many, but they're watching closely. Mm. You could sense his frustration. You referred to it there about it's not just me. He said I'm not the only one who makes these decisions. There's nine of us around that board, and it's true. And it's very unusual to see a reserve bank governor sort of in the spotlight to this degree and and sort of demonised, I suppose, to this degree. And he's clearly feeling it. He's clearly feeling yeah. that pain. Let's get to that in a moment too. But he was, it was interesting, this issue that he raised about savings. Now, we're constantly hearing about the level of indebtedness that Australians have, and we're not, we're never, uh, we never hear much about how much Australians have saved. Apparently, quite a lot, says Philip Lowe. Now, you'd think, oh, well, that's probably a good thing. Surely a high level of national savings by individuals in particular is a very good thing. But Philip Lowe is worried about the level of Australian savings. He says we saved it during the pandemic. Unfortunately, he says, well, he, he seems to imply that we're itching to spend them now. I'm not sure about yeah. that. But this is what he, he said about it. The pool of excess savings in Australia is as large as anywhere in the world and the pool that was built up during the pandemic, it's more than 20% of one year's household disposable income. So there's a huge pool of excess savings. Uh, it's not evenly distributed across the population. Um, Lower-income people obviously haven't got uh, the same savings as higher-income people. And one of the analytical issues we're grappling with here is how do people view these savings? Do they view them as just an increment to their wealth that they can spend over the coming years, or do they view it as like a piggy bank that now they can go and kind of use to spend over the next little while? So we don't know the answer to that, and that's one reason we're watching the, the spending data very, very carefully. Just a couple of things here. Fran, I'm sure a lot of people would say none of your business. Uh, you know, it's, it's, my, it's, <laughs> well... my, it's my money and I'll do what I like with it. Thanks very much. Point number two, I think a lot of people would be angry about that, thinking, what savings? We don't have any savings. Well, that's right. And as he said, people at the lower end of the income sale, scale do not have the luxury of savings. You know, we exactly. know that people exactly. in low and I would say middle income spend these days most of what they get in at the moment. But over the pandemic, uh, you know, there was apparently a big savings burst. And when you say none of your business, thank you very much, it's actually very much their business because if we all start spending our savings, it's going to counter 
the impact of the interest rate <laughs> increases. You know, it's going to it's going to fuel inflation. It's not going to it's not going to help the bank in that task. And in fact, uh, some other figures out today, I think again from the uh, Commonwealth Bank, suggested that you know we are spending still. Retail spending is up. Um, travel spending is up. Hospitality spending is heading up. So we are spending, even though people are feeling the pain. So, you know, we are not all equal in the society, that's for sure. And it seems to be that there's one sector of the society that's doing it tough and feeling acutely every one of these rate rises. And the, and the governor today said he was he got hundreds and hundreds of letters from people and, you know, it was, um, it was very difficult for him basically to read them. Um, but, um, you know, they tugged at his heart. Of course they would, but there's a lot of people Clearly, who have a lot of money in the bank, and yeah, I don't the, know. Who, I don't know who these people are. Yeah, I don't know who these people are. They're rich are. people, I think. Perhaps they're rich people. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, certainly, certainly, <laughs> not too many of the people are listening to this program. I think would be in that particular. box. I think a lot of people I, would I be would be I mean, saying, a lot of "People are going what? I, I think most people, yeah, most people would be one to two months away from disaster if their income dried up. And uh, this level of this idea of huge savings, I think, uh, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, the, the, what, the other interesting thing, Fran, I love your comment about this, is that it was <laughs> – I've never – it's been a long time since I've seen an individual of the Reserve Bank uh, be under such pressure that so yeah. much of the discussion is not about what the bank's doing so much as about the personality of Philip Lowe and, you know, and him. And there seemed to be, you know, there seemed to be quite – I mean, there's a degree of finger-pointing, which – I think it's almost un- unprecedented. Um, Philip Lowe said he's keen to stay. He, he responded when he asked when it was asked why he shouldn't be sacked before his term expires in September. I have a seven-year term as the governor of the bank, and uh, I intend to serve out that term. It's a it's an important job. Uh, comes with public accountability, and this is part of the process. But I intend to serve out that term. And- mm. Uh, have you seen this level of personal animosity before? No, I haven't, and I don't. And I don't think it's a very positive thing for our economy, really, because the independence of the Reserve Bank is one of the is, is a central pillar of the integrity of our system and, and and trust in our system. That we we understand the bank is separate. We understand politicians don't control uh, monetary policy in that way, and that's a good thing by and large. And so, if we are, you know allowing or seeing a climate where politicians feel secure and taking a bit of a whack and also, you know, individuals are pretty unhappy with with Philip Lowe because particularly because of the reassurances he gave them about, you know, interest rates won't start rising before twenty twenty four. That was really the only moment really um mm. of you know, there was a there was a lot of support for Philip Lowe and I think during the pandemic and he was a frequent reassuring voice during the pandemic. And he before that he was a frequent, you know, reminder to the government that wages do need to rise. It's actually not good economic policy to keep wages depressed as they had been. Um so he sort of flipped from hero to villain and uh, now that he has villain status, I think by and large, it's not a good thing, and mm. we we don't want to exacerbate that. In my view, it's a it's unfortunate that this time of pressure on Philip Lowe coincides with his contract being up. I think. Yes, no, indeed, you're probably sure you're right about that. All right, look, just moving on. The great the uh, the government the uh, and and what the task is ahead. They've got uh, they've got problems. There's no doubt about that. Governing is not diff- is not easy. They've <laughs> they found themselves having to negotiate, well, of course, with the Greens in the Senate over 
three uh, quite important areas, uh, and they're not getting any help from the opposition, who they've termed the Noalition. Uh, well, name-calling aside, what's going on with the negotiations in the Senate? Because basically the government, if the opposition don't help them, the government in the Senate need the Greens plus two, don't they? That's right. Yeah, they do. And I think the government was a bit surprised at the tack that Peter Dutton has taken here to be such a firm no voice, you know, opposition uh, against these major policies, particularly I think that they're a bit shocked that the uh, that the opposition has voted no to the National Reconstruction Fund, which is the it's a fifteen billion dollar fund. It's a lot of money, um, and basically it's aimed at putting us um, on a more sustainable footing in terms of our supply chains. You know, during the pandemic, uh, all the problems, the disruption to supply chains. There, it was we were really revealed as having just not enough capacity to look after ourselves, provide for yep. ourselves the things we critically need, things like medicines, things like uh, computing components, you know, manufacturing goods more broadly. We've lost that capacity. And it was the it was the policy of the Morrison coalition to invest in trying to, you know, spend money, let's face it, on trying to regain some of that. Well, government, the Albanese government has taken that to a different level and it's got this $15 billion fund. I think they were surprised that Peter Dutton has taken this tack on this and also on housing. I mean, I, it is it does surprise me, the politics of any opposition who would say no to a housing support fund to build housing, affordable and social housing. I don't quite understand their political thinking here, but but they've decided they're going to be, uh, they're going to say no. Uh, it's taking a leaf out of Tony Abbott's book perhaps, worked for him as an opposition leader, you could argue, or Peter Dutton perhaps thinks. Um, and so that leaves the government at the mercy of negotiating with the Greens and the crossbench. And the Greens have one mantra and one mantra only, which is no new coal and gas. And it's a line they came up with some months ago that at the time everyone thought, well, that's too extreme, that's going nowhere. It's actually getting some traction, they're sticking with it. And um, it's hard to see how how the Albanese government and the Greens are going to bridge this gap because it would seem impossible, really, that that any government would say no to, to any new gas developments, in particular coal mines, they might think the market's not not going to help mm, the coal mm. industry anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, so I think it's a it's a really interesting moment. We're seeing the government forced to the Greens, the Greens flexing their muscle, but also Adam Bant saying, well, I'm not – this is not an ultimatum. So he's trying to signal he wants to be in the game, he wants to be at the table, but they're not stepping back from this line. So I think we're just at the early stages of this. It's all going to happen quite quickly because the government wants to get this passed by the end of March so they can get it up. By the middle of the year, as yeah, promised. So there's a bit of pressure on. Including this greenhouse safeguards emissions um, policy too, which you'd yep. thought, you thought the coalition would support after all, because but mainly because business support it. They, and also because it's their policy. I mean, it was it's their, their emission safeguards. It was, it was their policy, that's right. And business supports it uh, pretty much overwhelmingly. Yeah. Uh, so the opposition saying that they're now... They're running some line. They're running a line that they're not going to support it. Uh, the Greens say, "Well, they, they they might support it, but they will only do so on one condition." Here's Dorinda Cox, the Greens Resources spokesperson. We can't continue to pour petrol on the fire. We want to work with the government, and we have we've offered to pass this legislation, but we need to see real action on there being no new coal and gas opened up in this country. 
Yeah, so here they go. <laughs> Climate yeah, change. And the minister- government's response to that, you saw it in, I mean, it really got quite willing in question time mm. with the government basically hammering the Greens on, you know, the old don't let the perfect be the enemy of good, which That's is right. a reference back to when they blocked the CPRS, Kevin Rudd's carbon credits, um, carbon well, carbon price back in 2009. The Greens have worn that sort of like a... Um, mm. a an albatross oh, around their neck. An albatross, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although they they stand by it, but nevertheless, most people I think think we would be better off in this country in terms of climate policy, perhaps if they'd taken a different point mm. back then. Mm. Anyway, the government's trying to hammer them with that. The Greens aren't really flinching yet, but I think I I think what we might see is some kind of compromise where the government agrees to not letting any new gas and you know this. This this safeguard mechanism covers 215 of our top emitters. Now, what happens if any new coal or gas uh, developments put their hand up and say, well, we're going to be big emitters too, we want a part of it, we want access to those carbon credits? Well, mm, you know, yeah. maybe that'll be the That's trade-off, right. something yes, cl- like that. Climate change minister Chris Bowen said, uh, well, we're, there's no, we're not going to talk Turkey about that. Where we can come together in good faith, we'll continue to do so. Uh, ultimately, they have a party room. The leader of the Greens can put a position to his party room. He knows how to navigate through his party room better than I do. But ultimately, I'm speaking on behalf of the government, we will not agree to anything not in keeping with our election mandate. And so, Fran, yeah. and so, Fran, the ship sails on. Yeah, for the moment, yeah. And for the it really is a big divide on the surface. I really wish I could say that I knew what was happening beneath the waves, but I don't. But mm. something is happening, that's mm. for sure. Thanks for your spot up on the crow's nest. Looking ahead, Fran Kelly, terrific to talk. Absolute pleasure. See you later, Phil. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.